Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have one of our favorite reoccurring guests on today. We have the wonderful Liz Phillips. How are you this morning, Liz? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? We're hanging in there, aren't we? <laughs> I, I didn't get the memo about the blue and the blonde, long blonde hair. I'm clearly uh, <laughs> one of these isn't like the other. <laughs> And that's okay. That's okay. We're all doing our, we're all marching to the beat of our own drum this morning. And that's how it should be. <laughs> so this is going to be a really, really interesting episode. I'm excited to delve into this topic. I think a lot of you have probably seen, or if not actually watched it, just are aware that there's a new documentary on Hulu called Daughters of the Cult. And it is the story of the Ervil LeBaron family and atrocities and murders that were committed. Um, some of the children are speaking on it, talking about what it was like growing up and just their experiences. So um, I've watched uh, most of it. Landon, have you watched? I've watched about half. I'm about halfway through too. Yeah. And I think Liz is also, yeah, sorry. Liz has also watched some of it. So, but we, we were really interested to bring Liz on because she is actually uh, the granddaughter of Rulin Allred who figures prominently in the documentary Daughters of the Cult because he was actually a victim of murder and violence um, at the hands of the LeBaron cult. And also Liz's dad was a prophet of the Apostolic United Brethren, which is the polygamous group that she grew up in. And his name is Lynn Thompson. So we always say that Liz is a polygamous princess, don't we, Landon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> With she... a little crown. <laughs> Definitely uh, related to two prophets. Uh, That's right. Yeah. That's right. The AUB. So, speaking of crowns, one of the things that we had grown up with was that uh, the longer the woman's hair, the higher the crown her is. Her crown is in heaven. So, I think that's why a lot of the women, especially in the FLDS, have long hair so they can have a very large crown in heaven. That that is so interesting, and that seems to be like a common theme in a lot of even evangelical, you know, high demand, high religious cults, like the Bill Gothard cult. Remember, oh, like yeah. we talked to the shiny happy people, and it was the same mm -hmm. thing. You had to have puffy, curly, longer hair. So, I have no excuse for having long hair. I was not raised in in that kind of a cult, but I still have it. So I don't know. <laughs> um, so we love Liz. We've had her on several times, and we will link her other episodes with us in the show notes. And we love Liz because she says, "I survived two cults." Right. That's kind of your tagline. <laughs> not only was she raised in the uh, AUB, she also then. Um, joined mainstream Mormonism and then gravitated away from that. So, but enough about us explaining to you who Liz is. We're just going to dive in and talk. And I think we'd just like to, you know, a lot of us have watched this, the documentary and, and learned about the Herbal LeBaron cult. Why don't you tell us, um, just to begin with, what is the AUB and how did you grow up? And just a little bit about that to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, as you guys had mentioned, I grew up in the AUB. We did not call it the Apostolic United Brethren. We called it the group. Um, the things that differ differentiated us from other groups was really my grandpa Rulin. And um, there was a split that happened in 1954 that kind of broke off the FLDS with my grandpa's group. Um, and he was kind of the reason for the schism. <laughs> and for the issue. But uh, some of the things that were different than the FLDS was because of my grandpa's uh, profession, he 
delivered a lot of babies within these groups. And he saw the trauma that the women had gone through when these women were having babies under age, um, their bodies were too small to hold these babies. They were having a lot of children and not being able to mentally uh, take care for these children. So one of the reasons why they had split off was the underage marriages. So he encouraged within the group that I grew up in, no, I was not pressured to get married at 14. Um, we had our own autonomy and was able to grow up. We went to public schools. Um, one of the things that my grandpa had taught was that uh, we were going to be in the world, not of the world. So we were very closely aligned with mainstream LDS church. He actually grew up in the mainstream LDS church and had a great love for the church. So we were very parallel along the church and their beliefs and what they taught um, and how we dressed and how we spoke and believing in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. All of those things were extremely similar. So you could quite easily have an AUB polygamous child in your classroom growing up and not be aware of it if you were here in Utah. Um, I grew up in West Jordan and going to public schools, going to seminary. We were encouraged to do all of that. My grandpa encouraged the adults that were getting married to join a local congregation in the mainstream LDS church get your temple garments out um, so that you could have the covenants and then you could rejoin the group again so <clears throat> so to actually go to the temple then and like get married in the temple and yes. okay and yeah, then so go my back parents, to the group yeah, yeah so my parents a that. unique point you you said that the AUB kind of believed that they were holding the polygamy side and that the they believed the LDS church was holding the temple side and that at one point they'd come back together and bring all of that back into the gospel I guess yeah, exactly. At least that's what I was taught, you know, growing up. I know that some of the beliefs have changed over time and to accommodate the long period of time that has happened between when my grandpa was teaching that and now, because my grandpa was murdered in 1977. So some of the beliefs have evolved and changed depending on who the leader of the AUB is. So I'm not quite sure exactly how aligned they are with that belief anymore, but that was what I was taught growing up was that um, the AUB, the keys to the priesthood or the fullness of the gospel was held by Rulin and these leaders, these men, and that was basically the husband. And then the church who had all of these other keys was the wife. And when Christ came again, the two would be able to come back together. So that's what we were taught growing up. Um, we very closely aligned with mainstream LDS, which in some ways, uh, was nice because we were anonymous amongst Mormons in Utah. And then in other ways was not nice when um, we were found out and the LDS children no longer wanted to associate with us. So um, in some ways it was just a wonderful childhood and in really all aspects, I lucked out because Rulin is my mom's father. And so she had a very close relationship as many of my grandpa's children did with him. So she had um, a lot of experiences with him and just really adored and loved him. So by the time I was born a couple of years later, um, I, my childhood really was bathed in the knowledge of him and in his love for his family, for his church. Um, and as a leader. So if you were to talk to anyone who directly associated with my grandpa, they would be the first to tell you what an amazing human being he was and how caring and loving he was. 
And that really was the childhood that I grew up in was hearing stories about my grandpa. My mom always talked about him um, when we'd be out on nature walks, when we would be driving in the car. He had a huge impact on many, many, many people in his lives. And the the loss that we felt in was felt in that community has trickled through generations as I am a testament of that. So um, growing up, his existence was definitely talked about and admired and um, was really a large part of me growing up. And he was, he was, he was talked about as really the ideal man to live polygamy. Um, He taught that if you don't have the finances to be able to take care of multiple women, that you shouldn't be marrying them. He did not believe in state assistance or state help. It was you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And if you can't, then you shouldn't have that many women in your life. So um, he really was a proponent of really taking care of yourself and taking care of your family. So, which I know can differentiate from different groups in polygamy, but that was really something that he taught was being able to be self-sufficient. Food storage was a a huge um, thing just because Christ was going to come again any minute in the second coming. And I that is perpetuated the mainstream LDS church, maybe not focused on as much right now, but it was definitely something that was taught for a long time in the mainstream LDS church too. So um, there was a lot of very similar things that were taught between my grandpa and the mainstream LDS church. So how did, how did he get involved with the herbal of how did herbal of baron uh even come into play here i mean it from what i saw you know LeBarons are in mexico uh yeah. practicing their own religion and their form and then all of a sudden they come to salt lake in in the in the documentary and and murder your grandfather and i never quite understood what the tie-in was or why they had to do that or why they thought that was necessary yeah, so the LeBarons had actually met my grandpa before, and that's how they really knew each other. So um, after my grandpa was arrested in the 1944 raids where they came in and, and um, jailed a lot of polygamist men, um, he took his family and broke parole and ran down to Mexico and was welcomed by the LeBarons to come in and live down there in Mexico. Um, and the wives were down there with my grandpa and they did not have a very good experience. They really had, and I know that the LeBarons have talked about this. They really had a rough living down in Mexico. There was a lot of poverty. There was not a lot of resources. Um, and my grandpa's, my grandpa and my grandmother's really had a hard time living down there, but that was really the first association with the LeBarons that they had. And remember, Ervil was not the leader back then it was Joel or it was Alma. And and so there really was a different feel. It wasn't that he came down and met Ervil right away. These were really um, budding prophets or budding mm-hmm. leaders. And so they weren't a leader at that time that they had met my grandpa. But so Rulin had been on their radar for a very long time, especially within the polygamist groups. They all know each other pretty well, at least know of each other and um, their families can interact in various ways. Um, And with the United States feeling unsafe for polygamists, Mexico was the next place to go. Did the LeBarons, were they part of the the LDS colonies down there or is that separate? They kept in the show, they'd call it colonial LeBaron or whatever. So I wasn't sure if they were part of the 
you know, LDS colony there that went, you know, as we all know, went there during the, uh, when they were trying to hide out from uh, the the polygamy raiders. <laughs> yeah, so really, yeah, that is that is why the LeBarons ended up going to Mexico was um, at least back when the United States was really coming down on polygamists. A lot of mainstream LDS leaders would encourage these men who um, wanted to live polygamy to go to Mexico and continue living polygamy. So this, those LeBarons had come from that, from the church really asking those men to go to Mexico. That's where the LeBarons had started and stayed down there in Mexico. So I I know there's a a lot of mainstream LDS people that live down there now. Are they kind of separated from them? Are they all in the same little area? Do you, do you know how that works? Um, You know, I don't know exactly, but I'm pretty sure they're pretty separate. I mean, if, if they have stayed within the mainstream LDS church they're they have adopted, at least from what I have heard, the kind of the same mentality that uh, polygamists are not to be associated with. So they definitely wouldn't be in the same areas. I don't know how far away they are down in Mexico. There are some places down there, but Remember, there's not only, you know, the LeBarons that have a a place down there. There's also the AUB in Azumba. There's from that has that my grandpa had kind of associated with and and got some followers there. So there are um, followers in Mexico that follow the AUB teachings today in Azumba. So there's different polygamous groups that have different places in Mexico that have different polygamous beliefs. Yeah, I think it's very complex. And and most of us can't even understand it. You hear somebody is a polygamist and you just think they're all connected doing the same thing. Not true at all. And a lot of people don't realize the impetus for it was post-manifesto that the actual mainstream church leaders said, go do this somewhere else. We'll just hold it there, you know, until we can get it back, which is a whole nother episode, isn't it, Landon? Yeah. And we've talked about that before. So it is interesting to see that. But so so what you're saying is that your grandfather, to escape some of the pressure in the 40s, actually spent time in Mexico, and that's where he connected with the LeBarons. Okay, see, I didn't even know, realize that. Did you, Landon? That, no, no. That makes no more idea. sense. And yeah. so, so the LeBaron family was then aware, once your grandpa then went back, to Utah, right? And then yeah. started, okay, so he was able to return and then build his group at that point, at which point it sounds like it became successful. You know, I mean, you guys are fairly mainstream. It's set, talk about maybe that era and why why that would make someone else, someone like the LeBarons think, I, I don't know what they were thinking about your grandpa's group. Jealousy is, I mean, maybe talk about that dynamic. It's, you know, they talk about it in the documentary and how if you're not, it's the, if you're not with us, you're against us. If you're Uh, not, you know, within our group, then, then you need to be, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, then you need to get rid of all these people who are actively working against the kingdom of God. And that would include, you know, these leaders. And and I know that there were multiple reasons why uh, my grandpa was targeted. Um, obviously, the tithing money was part of it because they were seeing that his group was growing. And so, yes, there was probably some of this wanting his congregation um, and wanting his notoriety, but also it had to do with Ervil wanting to um, flush out one of his brothers so that he could, this brother would go to my grandpa's funeral and then they could kill his brother there. I mean, he was already on your a grandpa's spot. brother is what we're talking about. No, Ur- no. Oh, Herbal's brother. Remember, Herbal yeah. had murdered Joel. 
Okay. He was, okay. And he was actively looking to murder his other brother. Okay. Ervil's brother. And okay. so he, and, and this brother had an association with my grandpa Rulin. And so he knew that if Rulin was gone and out of the picture, then Ervil's brother would show up at the funeral and then they could um, be able to finish the job with his brother. So he That's kind diabolical. of, remember they, they did like a long, it's not just, it, these are long planned, planned out um, hits. They're not, you know, um, just a, a really quick idea and they, and they follow through with it. These have been thought out and, and planned. That that was an ominous part of the show because um, they, they showed that they actually did show up at your grandfather's funeral with uh, automatic semi-automatic weapons ready to just, they, their, the intent was to do mass murder at the funeral, including your uncles who were on the show. Uh, they were going to be pallbearers and they showed a picture of them all walking uh, you know, with the casket and they could have easily, you know, taken out a, a large portion of those people. But fortunately, the Salt Lake police were there kind of guarding it. And once they saw the police presence there, they they abandoned the uh, otherwise that would have been a horrific moment in Utah history uh, yeah. to have if that had actually occurred, uh, would have been uh, mass mayhem at, at that point. So uh, that that was interesting uh, to see your uncle's perspective on on the show as as they talked about about that. Yeah, it was a very very scary time for a long time. Um, so let's talk about um, the actual events. What happened? So they planned it for a long time. And did anybody in your group have any sense that there was any danger anywhere? from that group. That's, that's what I'm curious about. Was it so out of the blue or was there a sense there are rumblings, there might be something happening or was it just completely unexpected? According to, according to my family, uh, there were, they, the LeBaron brothers, including Ervil had come up to Salt Lake and had stopped by my grandpa's home with his wives and children at home and had been very like posturing and, um, threatening and you need to follow us. And, you know, we are the one mighty and strong. And so my grandpa knew of them and knew that they were loud and uh, mm -hmm. they were posturing themselves and wanting to be um, the leaders. I, I don't think anyone thought that it would turn into murder. I know that they were threatening, just no one expected it to go this far. So I don't think so. I think it was it was very, very shocking. Once he started murdering his once he murdered his brother, though, I mean, he was arrested and was in the Mexican jail for like a year before he was able to get out. Did that start raising any, oh my gosh, these guys are violent. Uh, they're, they're... I mean, I'm sure they were like, wow, that's crazy. I can't mm -hmm. believe that. But I don't think they, I mean, that was within the LeBaron group. That wasn't any um, other people. So I don't think that was something they were aware of, that they would step outside of the LeBaron group to do things like that. And I'm guessing you probably felt your group was so different from their group. I would think that you were just thinking, we're just, we're here. We're among mainstream people. We're doing our thing. We're not like that. Was there a sense of that? Because to me, there's such a huge difference in, in the two yeah. groups. 
Yeah. And, and I think uh, some of that was perpetuated by my grandpa when I listened to my aunts and uncles talk and they were themselves a little worried about the LeBaron brothers coming up and being threatening. Um, he would say, oh, you know, they're all talk and and you're, don't worry about it. And he, and he was comforting his family to not worry about these LeBarons. He very much had a positive outlook on on everyone too, just like Joel did that very trusting, mm -hmm. like, well, nothing, you know, I'm sure it's fine. It's everything's going to be fine. So he was also comforting his family not to worry about it. Hmm. Yeah, it was it, the, the violence that the LeBaron started uh, showing, uh, especially when they went through and started killing their own members, burning down, they burnt down the, the whole uh, area there of, was it Joel or was it, uh, it was his other brother, right? That they, they, they burned down all the, mm -hmm. all the houses and everything. I mean, very, very violent, uh, group, uh, of people, it seemed like. And, uh, I, I, it, it seems strange to me that they thought they could just, but that by killing your grandfather, that everyone would just start giving their ties to the LeBaron group all of a sudden that they're gonna... well you think he would have learned his lesson because he tried that with first with Joel when he murdered Joel and those followers did not follow mm -hmm. him either so you you know you would have thought but obviously um probably most likely mentally unstable yeah. so um really probably didn't think through the aftermath of what would happen especially if you've got this idea this grandiose idea that you are the prophet um, the one mighty and strong, you have this delusion that people will follow. Yeah. Yeah. One okay. of the things that they said that reinforced that was the fact that uh, he kept getting off for the different things that he did. He, you know, he did kill his brother and they had all the evidence. It was in Mexico, the justice system there. He was in jail for a year awaiting trial, but once he was convicted, he, he was let go. I, I think within days uh, and they said that, uh, you know, that was most likely bribing uh, the, the Mexican officials to get him out. But that just reinforced the fact that, oh, look, he could murder and get away with it. Well, and, and they talked about that in the in the show that that they believed that that was God, mm -hmm. that that was God letting him go. That was because he was a true prophet. And so he, that reinforced their belief that he was the one mighty and strong. Yeah, you know, we're going to do an episode on the one mighty and strong, I think, aren't we, Landon? Because, <laughs> you know, it's just the concept of a special person being raised up, you know, to, to do great works. But it's used as a weapon by a lot of different groups and mainstream. We were making a list actually last night, weren't we, Landon, of all the people that have said they were the one mighty and strong. There are many you haven't heard of, but many you have, like the Lafferty's and David mm -hmm. Brian Mitchell, and, you know, just... It's just kind of a license to commit atrocities, it seems like, by thinking and, you're set apart, you're called of God. It's a very dangerous concept. Yeah. And and the opposing thought here is that that was exactly opposite of what my grandpa was. He did not like to be called prophet. He had a he did not love the mantle of being a leader. He was a gifted leader naturally, and he was a healer, which made a lot of people come to him seeking not only, you know, healing physically, but healing spiritually too. Um, I do have a really um, interesting quote from him that came from his journals. Uh, it's a diary entry that I think is 
encompasses what his thoughts are on how he lived his life. He said, I never had more fun in my life than I have living the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, down to earth fun that nobody in the world can possibly equal because they never know how to enjoy it. And it takes living the gospel to know how much fun there is in it. (laughs) And I just think that's so interesting to me because um, there was a lot of issues that come along with that. And he truly, truly believed in it and truly, truly loved it. And I think that that um, showed and it leaked into other parts of his life and other people could feel that and wanted that too for themselves. That's something uh, that that's kind of cool because I, I think so many uh, of us that were grew up in mainstream Mormonism, you know, you're taught that the evils of polygamy. So this polygamous <laughs> prophet must just be this evil, wicked man. Yeah. Uh, but to, to, to know you, Liz, and if, if you're anything like your grandfather, cause you always are such a positive, happy, uh, go lucky person. Uh, it, it really adds a face to it. You know, that, uh, that these people are human, that they have a, a side of them that they have a family that they love their family that they're raising their family they're not all Herbal LeBarons and and uh Warren Jeffs that there are that there are happy times and there are people who live polygamy and 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 are happy in it uh and and can find joy uh just like anywhere else in, in life and there are uh you mentioned that uh uh the AUB uh I think you said big love is based on the AUB uh model uh your aunt I think you yeah said, so you know, I I like you bringing that in. I I kind of do want to touch on that a little bit. So um, I do have an aunt um, and my it's her name is Dorothy Allred Solomon. She has written a few books on my grandpa on Rulin, her dad. Um, One of them is called In My Father's House. I don't think that's in print anymore, but the other one is called uh, Prey, Predator and Other Kinfolk. And it does kind of walk through her childhood growing up with her dad, Rulin. Um, and then it leads up to when he was murdered in 1977 and the experience and the trauma that they had um, within the family and how hard that was. And so because of that, she is a writer. Um, she kind of has her own platform and she was approached by Big Love and she agreed to be a collaborator on that. It was loosely based off of uh, my grandpa and his wives, which I I did watch a few episodes, but she really uh, got a bad taste in her mouth because they took a lot of artistic, um, uh, they they did a lot of things that she did not agree with. And because of the contract that she had signed, she really couldn't push back anymore. So they kind of went off the rails and she was very dissatisfied with that. Um, and to kind of lead into the Daughters of a Cult, this LeBaron, she was actually approached by Hulu to be one of the people that was interviewed. Um, she looked over the contract and her lawyers did too, because again, remember that she has a platform. She is a writer uh, and they really didn't feel comfortable with how restraining the contract was. And they went back to Hulu and asked them to take some of the pieces out or at least reword them. Um, and they were unable to or unwilling to as far as she is, so or as far as she's knows. And so she really didn't feel comfortable being interviewed for that Hulu special. Um she has really it she really feels like it is her personal mission to make sure that my grandpa's story is protected and told correctly. And that people are aware of the trauma that has perpetuated because of what Rena Shanoff had done to our family. She was the trigger woman. She's the one that actually murdered my grandpa. 
Um, and it, it really has been her life mission to make sure that my grandpa's legacy and his love is, is known and protected. And that Hulu contract really, she didn't feel like she could do that. It really bound her to not be able to uh, speak about my grandpa without their permission or without their consent. And they needed to know what exactly we're going to be asked. And that didn't really fit with her and what she felt like she needed to do, especially when it's such a personal thing. This is her dad. And now she's having a contract saying and binding her not to say certain things. So it was very distasteful for her. Um, and they didn't actually tell her at the beginning that it was actually a documentary on the LeBarons. They approached it that they just wanted to interview about interview her about her dad. Um, and it wasn't until a few weeks into kind of trying to figure out if they could negotiate the contract um, that she found out it was actually a documentary on the LeBarons, which was really heartbreaking for her because there is so much trauma within our family because of Rena Shinoff and the LeBaron family. Um, so that was a, that was a very hard thing for her. So she's already had some experiences that has to do with television and contracts, um, and how to deal with those people. And she just didn't feel like it was a good fit for her to be part of something that was glorifying her grandfather's murder or her yeah. father's murder. Yeah, no. And that's understandable. And then some of your other family members were able to appear and to sort of absolutely. Talk about yes. Things. So which makes yeah. sense. And, and that's fine. I mean, yeah. I think that they have a different life and they've, and they, they don't have the same expectations or the same, um, the same things that are important to them. And, and I do, it, that is their dad and they have every right to share their information and their experiences on their dad, just as Dorothy does. For, the, for those who don't know, can you, can you take a second and hopefully it's not too hard and describe exactly what happened uh, I mean, the murder was horrendous. It wasn't just, you know, it's it's easy to sit here and say he was murdered, but but it, it, the story behind that is just horrendous. Well, and I yeah. wonder if before we do that, just very quickly, I wonder if you could describe the makeup of your grandpa's family, you know, wives, children. Let's get a sense of just sort of who he is right there as far as who would have been impacted. And then, yes, let's move into exactly the events of that day, just because a, a lot of people may not know. Yeah. So, so when they're talking about a rival polygamist group and that's how they kind of refer to the AUB, really there was no fight. There was no rival. My grandpa was not rivaling with the LeBaron group. He had zero interest in any kind of um, going after the LeBaron followers or anything like that. So um, it, my my grandpa had originally seven wives um he had come over from mainstream lds so his so rulin's dad started to believe in polygamy he had come from a line of polygamy and so my grandpa really felt it important to dig into the church history and prove his dad wrong and in doing that found out that polygamy was taught um, in the early church history. And so then flipped and decided to live polygamy, which his first wife, Catherine did not agree to and ended up needing to leave my grandpa, which broke his heart. He really loved his wife, but felt this higher calling to live polygamy. And because of that, he came to Utah as a single man um, and quickly gained multiple women because he is kind and gentle, a gifted person, a healer, leader, 
um, and really quite quickly within the span of a few years was able to acquire seven wives and they adored him. As, as far as I'm understanding, when I talked to any of my grandmothers, they had only positive and wonderful things to say about him that he really tried to be present and with them when he was home with them. Um, he was a great dad. He would pay attention to his kids. He was available for them when he was around them. And at the very beginning of their family, they were all kind of living in one area. It was called the White House and it was a property that had multiple homes in one area, but the kids were able to just run around. There was a pond and a creek and it was really this idealistic way of living. Um, the mothers all worked together to cook and clean and really, for the most part, got along really well. They had this feeling of living a higher calling and that they were doing something righteous and wonderful. And um, so they really were quite happy. And it was jarring when um, the raids came and the police came and arrested my grandpa, it really broke apart the family. And they felt like they had to go more into hiding than they did before. Um, and that's when they had all packed up and gone to Mexico. And then they were heard, uh, Rulin's leaders, church leaders at the time said, Hey, it's safe to come back. Uh, the police are no longer actively trying to seek out polygamists and throw them in jail. So Rulin came back with his wives and, but really they were pushed into secrecy even more. So these women had to live kind of all over the place. And, and this is the part where it's kind of hard to keep track of because now there's multiple wives and they're living in multiple places where it's like different places in Utah, in Montana, in Idaho, in Nevada. Um, so they, and so they're in lots of different places, but really my grandpa made it high priority to go visit each of his wives and spend time with them and make sure they are safe and they're taken care of and bringing food or money to these different places. And at the same time, running a practice and nature, uh, he was a naturopathic doctor um, and he had his own office. And so at the same time, trying to run this office and one of his wives was in the office. She worked as the secretary there and um, he really had a successful business. There is, I don't think that a lot of mainstream LDS people know this. So I know that I've talked to personally, my friends or different uh, mainstream LDS people. They don't realize that there is um, that, that polygamy, especially the way that my grandpa presented it was really attractive to mainstream LDS. And if, if they were looking for or seeking for a way to become more righteous or follow the gospel even more closely there, and there ended up being an influx of mainstream LDS people into our church quite often. Um, 1958, I know was a large growth within the AUB that came directly from the church. And then sadly, we had a large growth right after the priesthood ban, because then the blacks were able to hold the priesthood. And that was something that, that the AUB does not teach is okay. And so we had a big, a large influx um, within the AUB from mainstream LDS um, coming over. So really what was taught within the AUB is um, these people would seek the gospel and they would, uh, the missionaries would bring people into the mainstream LDS church. But if these certain people were truly righteous, then the Lord would lead them to the AUB. And, and then they would meet my grandpa who is charismatic and kind and loving and just this wonderful man who is such an example of how to live polygamy. And it really attracted these men and these families into the AUB. And so he really was seeing a large growth 
within his community and really was trying his hardest to be a good example and be kind and loving and, and really take care of his congregation of his church and of his followers. And he really was humble about it. He really did not feel comfortable being called a prophet. Um, I do remember that specifically growing up and talking about, well, is, was he a prophet is, is so right after Rulin was his brother, Owen and, and, and Owen was not comfortable with that either. My uncle Owen was not comfortable being called a prophet um, because it was just supposed to be parallel along the line with the mainstream LDS church. Um, so really his growth or his um, practice was growing and his congregation was growing um, and he was very extremely busy. And at this time, by the time 1977 came around, he not only had many children who were all over the spectrum of beliefs. He had children that were staying within the gospel, within the AUB. He had children that had decided to join the mainstream LDS church. He had children that decided to completely leave. And he showed the example of how to love these children unconditionally, no matter what, no matter what their belief system was. So my example is Dorothy, my aunt, had left and joined the mainstream LDS church, and yet she still continually felt this love from her dad. Um, so he was really just one of these generous, kind-hearted, loving men who was, to a lot of people, the ultimate example of how to live polygamy. Um, and so to lead up to the murder of, of my grandpa, it left such a huge hole in this community because he really was the glue that was holding everyone together. Um, and it it threw a lot of people into... Um, a lot of hardship that wasn't there before. Um, but just kind of so that people are aware and how similar the AUB is, I don't think a lot of people understand this. Um, they actually have something like general conference that follows the weekend right after uh, the church's general conference. So twice a year, they have like a general conference where they'll all come together and meet and the leaders will talk and they have youth conferences and they have girls camp um, they have primary. So there's so many programs within the mainstream LDS church that are just paralleled right along with the AUB. So it's a very, very similar. You kind of get the same feel. And in fact, when I joined the mainstream LDS church, I would often have to check in with my friends and say, is this, do you guys believe in this too? Is this, or is this like a polygamous belief that I'm carrying over from because everything was so closely aligned that sometimes I would say something and, and they'd be like, Oh, we don't, we don't believe that. And I'd be like, Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> like, yeah. Because it was, it, you know, it was so closely aligned and, and really that is what my grandpa wanted. That is what he taught was to have this closely aligned um, so that you could vacillate between the two and really not have a big difference. I think they even had uh, a, a cultural hall with a stage and a basketball court in the church, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> they do. Yeah. yeah it's that very, doesn't very say similar. LDS what does. Wow. Yeah. And in fact, there are different communities um, within the AUB. They're not all in Bluffdale. There's different communities, but there's one in Santa Quinn where there is a literal um someone must have gotten a plan of an LDS ward house because their church down there is a literal LDS ward house that they had built on the property down there. But it is, you know, for the AUB members to go and go to church. Hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah. I think it's important for everybody to understand just 
kind of the organization and how beloved your grandfather was and his role before we get into more of the details of exactly what happened for people that aren't completely familiar, even though it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes. So my grandpa was at his office at the time and one of his wives was in the office. She ran the front office part of it and he was in the back. Um, and Rena is one, was one of Ervil's wives and her and another woman came in and they had dressed up as men and come into the office. And there were a couple patients there that uh, witnessed this and um, came in and went in the back and shot him. Um, and I, it's, it's obviously you can watch the documentary if you need to. There's also a podcast called deliver us from herbal that talks about it. And actually Dorothy is on that podcast talking specifically about my grandpa's murder and the LeBarons and the interactions that her family had had with the LeBarons before the murder. So if you're more interested in kind of uh, what happened there, but you know, they came in and shot my grandpa and everyone was in shock and couldn't believe what was happening. Um, and one of my grandmothers was over him when um, Rena had run out, but then came back in to make sure it had happened and shot around the room and shot him again. So I, it, it's jarring enough that they came in and, and murdered him, but then to know that, that they came back to make sure that the job was done um, is just, it's so crazy. Um, and then of course they escaped and, and ran off, but the police were able to find the men's wigs and clothing eventually in a dumpster. Um, it was extremely jarring for this whole community, right? So there was over, I think, 2,600 people had ended up coming to my grandpa's funeral. There was so like what you had said, Landon, if the LeBarons had decided to become mass murderers and do something, there were over 2,000 people there at the funeral honoring my grandpa. Um, he had a large family. He had a large community. And there was a lot of, a lot of people that he was taking care of. Um, that that's really, really impacted. Um, it was so shocking for the moms and for the children and for the whole community. There was a huge hole that I, that was felt for a very long time. And I think is still felt um, to this day, the trauma that has been ensued by Rena and the choices that the LeBarons had made, Ervil, um, carries through today. And I think that it's important for people when they are watching something like Daughters of a Cult or even the Lafferty Brothers or um, Murders Among the Mormon, that there are real people behind these horrific stories. And not only is it affecting those people that are directly in there, let's say Rulin's wives and children, the community that he had um, grown, but also his grandchildren and all of those people, um, we carry that trauma with us. I grew up with my mom talking about this trauma and sharing that with us and the hole that it has left in her heart and me being aware of that. So yes, I am her, his granddaughter and I have never met him, but that doesn't take away um, the impact that he has had in my life and the impact that Rena and the LeBarons have had in our lives even today. And I'm just one person that's not considering that he was the leader of a large polygamous group who um, he supported. Yeah. And you mentioned that at his death, of course, like you said, he was caring for so many people and so many families. Where does that leave them? I mean, even just in terms of physical care and financial, you know, ability to survive. 
Yeah. Like and breadwinner is of, taken away. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of go off of that. So like I had said, my, my aunt Dorothy had written a book about um, her dad. And so it had reached a lot of people and she had some really close friends at a time right after she had written the book and had been published they had brought a couple cars full of food and these friends said, Hey, we're pretty sure, you know, within the community who would benefit from this, from these food. And it was right before Christmas. And she, so she um, did know of some people within the group that would probably benefit from this food. And she said, I, I drove the food over and I walk in the home and there is literally no food anywhere, not in the pantry um, not on any shelves. She opened the fridge and there was a quarter gallon of milk and there was a whole bunch of children running around and these moms weren't even home. They were cleaning ho- houses at the time. So they were not even home. And um, she said, I was crying as I'm putting food in the pantry, seeing how hungry these children are. And she said, so I dropped everything off and I called my sisters and I said, you know, why haven't, why don't you have more help? Why don't you call the priesthood, which is part of the AUB? She's asking, why aren't you calling the AUB leaders and telling them how destitute you are? And they said, you know, the priesthood leaders have not helped us. Who helped us before was daddy. Daddy helped us before. So he had been carrying not only for his wives, but his children and their families. And there was a huge hole um, that had perpetuated because he was gone. And that's not to speak bad of the AUB's priesthood leaders or church leaders. I'm sure that there's a need there that they're trying to do the best that they can from, from what I'm aware of, but there was a huge, um, a huge hole that happened, um, that sent a lot of people into poverty and to sadness that, that is felt even today. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> watching the documentary and I, I didn't know the details. I just knew that he had been killed. And of course, talking to you and watching that documentary and seeing exactly what you said, the shooting and then the shooting again, it's just, it's just horrific when you see those details. And I can't even imagine how, how do you know any details of how, um, when it happened, it spread through your family as far as people being notified. I mean, did everybody know right away? I can't even imagine the just the the tragedy and the panic and just I can't even imagine what that day must have been like. Do you do your mother? Do I say mothers, your mother and mothers? You're always talking about how you were kind of, you know, had other people in your family that were helping to raise you. How how did people react to this? Um, it was jarring for everyone. So yes. as far as I'm aware, so remember, he was the leader of a large congregation that was right. within Utah, Idaho, Montana, Mexico. So mm-hmm. a lot of it came through phone calls. Um, there is one of my aunts who said, I remember, well, I'm I actually, everyone remembers that day. It's like one of the most traumatic days, but a lot of the phone calls that they received was from either their moms or their siblings. And there, a lot of them just said, daddy's dead. And that was what the phone call was. And then of course it was this breakdown of what do you mean? What do you mean he's dead? And so then they had to relive it and, um, and retell the story of what happened. And it was so jarring for so many of my family members, so many of my aunts and uncles and my grandmothers that, they still to this day have a hard time talking about it. Um, 
and the details of what exactly happened that day. Like, yes, they can talk about how he was murdered, but the details of how he was murdered because it was so horrific, because it was so deliberate, um, they don't discuss and they don't like discussing. So, and, and this is the funniest thing. I, I knew of my grandpa being murdered, but I never knew the details until I had listened to a deliver us from herbal podcast. And then my sister who is an active AUB member, um, she just watched the daughters of a cult documentary. And she was telling me that she had no idea the details of her, of grandpa's murder either. And I think that just is a testament to how jarring and upsetting it was. Um, and then to have Rena be found not guilty was just rubbing salt in this wound that was already so large. Yeah, maybe talk about that a little bit. Maybe discuss, I, I'm guessing that after he was killed, there was sort of an era of everybody being really scared. Like we talked about the funeral and thinking, is somebody going to come? So it must have been frightening then. And then you have to go through the process of keeping track of what's happening happening legally. You know, did they catch who did it? Um, is there a trial? Maybe talk about the aftermath like that from your family's perspective. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, it was very relieving when they had, to, they finally caught Rena and her partner. Um, and they thought for sure she would be found guilty because the evidence was there. Um, she admitted to it. Um, and so to be found not guilty was so heartbreaking for them. Um, they had a hard time even talking about it or dealing with it. I think that Herbal being convicted of it a few years later um, was in some way relieving, but it didn't it didn't necessarily take away that this person who had actually pulled the trigger um, is still getting off scot free. That is so hard for them. Um, there, it's hard because I've had people say, "Well, why don't the people within the AUB try to come after her civilly or something like that?" Um, it's, it's hard to explain to people the negative uh, way that people look at polygamists and how they are constantly vigilant and worried about attracting too much attention um, from law enforcement and then recreating the raids of 1944. That is its own trauma that polygamists still talk about, not within just the AUB, but within the FLDS and many other polygamists groups, that is also a trauma in and of itself to not trust the government, to not get justice from the government. And so then when Rena was found not guilty, it was almost like, a, well, that makes sense because yeah. we're not getting justice anyway. They're jailing these righteous, righteous men who are going into jail for just living the gospel. And then someone is actually murdered and they get off. Um, so it's it's been a very discouraging experience for a lot of the polygamists to have to deal with the court system. It has not worked out in their favor. And so to be able to seek damages means to bring the spotlight back onto polygamists. And that is a very scary topic for a lot of active AUB people. Yeah, that makes sense. Everyone's underground. There's no trust. And I think we should mention in the documentary, it definitely explains the trial. It explains why she was found not guilty. And it was the sense of she was very young, 19, the brainwashing component. And then they alluded to just like jury tampering or the fear of doing anything against the, is that how your family kind of 
saw the reason that she was found not guilty. Yeah, I mean, it's I very complex. They, I know. Yeah, it is very complex. And I, and I think that they had compassion for her being mm -hmm. so young. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was so, you know, that definitely was awful. Um, but they could understand her being so young with the brainwashing. The mm -hmm. issue that came later was that then she chose to write a book about it about literally murdering my grandpa and then getting money off of writing this book is where the real trauma happened again. So she is found not guilty. And then, so then a lot of my family members were thinking then she must be repentant. I'm sure she feels awful about what she had done when she was so young. Um, she wrote a book about it about literally being the trigger person and murdering someone. And now she's getting money off of this book that she has written and notoriety and interviews. Um, so clearly that shows to my family that she is not sorry for what she did. Um, and that was really hard. And so because of that, uh, Dorothy, my aunt had decided to go, uh, they, she'd been invited to go on to Sally, Jesse Raphael. And so had Rena at the time, and she served her papers to, um, get rights for the, that book, because she was like, there is no reason why you should be profiting off of murdering my father. Um, and it, it was a really hard thing for my family to see that she clearly is not repentant or sorry for what she did and claiming victimhood and claiming brainwashing is one thing, but then to turn around and say, yep, I did it. And this is how I did it. And this is what, ha what happened, um, is, is at least showing to my family, not the remorse that they thought she had. Well, you think the court system would look at that and say, Okay, yes, she was brainwashed from a very young age. We can understand that. But you still think they would find you guilty, but then put a lesser sentence on that, you know, to say, you, you know, that's not an excuse. You can't just kill people because you've been brainwashed. So to, to find her completely innocent just is mind boggling, because like you said, she she admitted to it. They, they actually said in the show, they, you know, that the people that were looking through the dumpster, whatever it was, they were looking, I don't think they were, they were looking just for stuff they could recover. And all of a sudden they find uh, the box that had the gun in it with the serial number and, and the wigs and all the other things they had all the evidence. There was no question that she'd done it. And mm -hmm. then to find her innocent of that uh, just uh, is mind boggling. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I think that you have to remember culturally where we were at at that time in 1980s, where a young woman who's pregnant at the time can very much look and be perceived as innocent. I don't know if you guys have ever like watched uh, people talk about, you know, how people present themselves in court can really dictate what their sentencing turns out to be or whether they're found guilty or not guilty. So here's this a beautiful young 19 year old who is pregnant, who looks very much like a victim. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she was found not guilty. And she really did portray herself like that. She really did present herself as a victim. She did talk about that. She was an active part in saying, you know, he really wanted me to do this. He told me my salvation was on the line there. You know, it's very much a cult mentality. Um, and they really did want to get Ervil because though Rena pulled the trigger, Ervil was the one that was having this mastermind ideas behind it. Um, the thing that's so frustrating is it's not like she had taken a plea deal and that's why she turned out to be scot-free yeah. that she had gone through the court system and was found not guilty. 
Um, so then to turn around and write a book about it because of the double jeopardy law that you can't take her back um, to court for openly admitting to murdering someone like that um, and obviously not being sorry about it um, has, has been really, really hard for the family. And there was another supposed to be a trigger woman with her, but was she was not able to shoot. And was she ever brought to trial or not at all? Um, I'm I'm unaware of that. I, I didn't do research on that. I don't right. know. She hasn't written a book about murdering okay. my grandpa or at least being <laughs> there. Right. So she didn't she wasn't quite as um, I, I'm not aware of her as yeah. uh, as much. She was not part of my uh, childhood. She wasn't part of my life story because really it was Rena and and her what seems to be very unrepentant attitude of what she had done to yeah. our family and to the community. Do we know if Rena is benefiting from this show with Hulu? I have no, I don't know that. Um, they do use her interviews. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where she's getting, who has the rights to her interviews where she's talking about herbal and uh, life within the cult. Um, it would be interesting to kind of go down the rabbit hole and see what's going on there. But I do know that um, a few years ago, you know, and I can't say, that Google speaks for everything. Uh, but a few years ago when I had looked her up, she was, her worth was $5 million. And then my husband looked her up just the other day when this daughters of a cult came out and it said 10 million. So clearly she's profiting from, from this notoriety. I mean, I don't know where else she's getting this money. I guess I haven't really done a lot of research, but she's, she's definitely worth a lot of money. And, and, um, so I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not aware of if she's profiting from it or not. That would be an interesting thing to see if someone can figure out. That would be, have you, what, have you talked to other members of your family about how they feel about the documentary or are you not talking about it or what? Well, yeah. I know you don't want to speak for people, but is there a yeah. general just idea that you're kind of aware that it's happening and thoughts? Um, it's, it's a definitely a touchy subject for our family still. Yeah. And, um, they're all over the spectrum, which I think is normal. I know that with the Lafferty brothers and the Lafferty family, there were members of the family who actively helped with the documentary or with the show. Um, right. and then there were people that wanted nothing to do with it and was pretty right. upset about it. And I think that's really what's been happening here within my family is clearly some of my uncles felt comfortable to share their stories mm -hmm. on the daughters of a cult and felt like it was their time to share their story about their dad. Um, and then there's parts, especially with my aunt, um, who don't want to watch it and don't want anything to do with it and find it, uh, very hard that they are excusing the actions of, of the LeBarons. And, to be fair, um, I can hold space for the sisters who are on this documentary, who are sharing their stories. I can hold space for them to, and understand that they want to own their name and and um, curate it to how they want it to be. And that it's important for them to be able to make a name for themselves and to not pay for the sins of their father. So I understand that and I can hold space for that. Um and then also hold space for my family who understandably has so much pain and hurt still. Um, and that is not, is not going to be asked to forgive such a horrific thing who was done by someone who is not sorry. So 
Um, it's, it kind of, it's all over the spectrum. I've got most of my aunts and uncles that I speak to, um, want nothing to do with watching it. It's too heartbreaking, especially because this documentary is claiming to be talking about the daughters of Ervil LeBaron. And it really seems a large chunk of it is to talk about, um, Ervil and, and, and his murders and a large part of it. And I know that it has to do with the notoriety of my grandpa, but, uh, focuses a lot on my family. And, mm-hmm. and so that was, that's been hard for them. It's like reliving the trauma all over again. If you can imagine if you've gone through something really hard, someone throwing that back up in your face again, um, can be very re-traumatizing for the family members. Yeah, the name is a little imagine. bit, the, the daughters of a cult is a little bit, uh, from what I saw, a little misleading because it's not really focused too much on the daughters. It's more just the daughters talking about, uh, you know, what what happened or, or the way they saw it, but the, also the son, his, his son's yeah. in it too. So yeah. Yeah. almost more like children of the cult or something like that. That's too so. close to children of the corn. They're it never be, going to yes. that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But well, just about as scary. Uh, that it is very scary. Well, and I think I think Liz, you touched on it that he was Ervil LeBaron was arrested for this eventually, you know. But and gave your family maybe some peace for a minute, but then even that kind of went south. So it's almost right? like where is the justice here? Yeah, and and to be fair, you know, when he passed away and he sent that manifesto or that those mm-hmm. new scriptures mm-hmm. that he sent to his followers and then the murders were happening again, like the four o'clock murders, my family yeah. once again was living in terror because um he had clearly perpetuated this lust for murder and this blood atonement um and now he was encouraging his followers even though it's like he was beyond the grave perpetuating yeah. this violence and that goes to show this again as i keep repeating myself generational trauma that has been carried from one man down to his children um and and that shows with the four o'clock murders and the, and so it, there was still a worry. I, I remember learning about that in elementary school that, um, technically speaking, because of, um, the way that he had, Ervil had written his scriptures that he had sent to his followers, um, that technically I would be on the hit list and anyone with the all red last name was on the hit list. And I remember being like, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, well, it has to do with like, anyone in that whole family and the generations that follow. So technically speaking, I was like, I'm on a hit list. What do you, how did they, you know, but I'm a kid. And so my brain is going, what do you mean? So, so people can come murder me and that's so scary. And um, so it, it's, it was really scary for a long time um, even after he passed away. And it was almost a, a Jeffrey Epstein moment where you're like, Oh, we finally caught the bad guy. And then he passes away in prison. And right. you're like, what? Uh, there's no justice here. He just, yeah. he would just barely got put away. And like, now he's gone. And that, how unfair is that? You know, it just felt yeah. very unfair and just like, are you serious after all that? And then it carried on through him passing away. It's yeah. just crazy. This story is so crazy um, that if you just told it, people wouldn't believe you if you, they hadn't lived it. So Right. And I think if if for our listeners and viewers that haven't seen the documentary, that's exactly what happened. He continued to sort of order hits from prison when he was there. And then even after he passed away through writings and scripture that he put out, he made sure that his followers knew 
that there was still work to be done. And the four o'clock murders were multiple people were killed at the same time, four o'clock on June 27th, which was the day and time of the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram. You know, I'm sure your family was thrown into a panic and terror again. Like you said, this just is not going away. I can't even imagine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's been, it's been, um, interesting as a couple generations removed to interact very loosely with some LeBarons. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. (laughs) They, um, they've been very, the ones that I've interacted with have been extremely, extremely kind and lovely. And, and because I wasn't directly affected, I can hold space for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would never speak for my aunts and uncles Mm -hmm. who have had to directly deal with that trauma and expect anything like that from them. And I think that that's something that we have to understand as we um, watch these documentaries and understand that it's affecting a lot of people that a lot of people can be, you know, they can watch this documentary and go, how lovely are these sisters and how sweet are they? And they just look like they want to fill the world with love. And and that's beautiful. Um, And that's something to be commended and they should, Um, but they should not expect other people that have gone and been directly affected to have that same feeling and, and um, project that onto them and expect them to act or react a certain way and to be able to hold space for other people to go, you know what, it still hurts and it's not okay. So. Yeah, no, it's very complex and everybody has the feelings that they have because they came from different places and I've interacted with the sisters and, and they seem wonderful. They seem yeah. very nice and kind and wonderful and, and lovely. And I think there's a sense, um, I was going to ask you about how <laughs> your feelings about the community at large and their understanding of it. And if your, your community felt supported at all, because I have this idea that when you hear, oh, one polygamist murdered another polygamist, it's just, that's them. They're doing all that. They, they don't, they're not like us, you know, very othering, right. And lumping all into one boat there, they do that kind of thing, right. There's this violence, this evil, you know, so this story that you're telling is so important because there's a huge difference and there are real people. Did, did you feel at the time or from talking to your, your aunts or anyone in the family that the there was empathy or understanding from the outside of the polygamous community? Did, did the world at large understand what had happened to your family? family or it was just sort of an othering that's what they do to each other which sounds so horrible but i think there's this misunderstanding of the dynamics within the different polygamous groups that you might say that oh that that would never affect us that was them you know and so maybe was there support was there no support how was it seen from the larger community um well within my community i know that um <clears throat> the way that they had been treated especially within utah and the way that polygamists um, interact with mainstream LDS Mormons um, has generally not gone well. Mm -hmm. They are generally um, very judgmental and rude. And um, they have these, the AUB, the polygamists, my family have been othered anyway. Yeah. So there was no expectation of support outside of the group. Um, There was no wondering if they could feel supported outside of that because they had been othered for so long within the, within Utah, um, been villainized for so long. 
that uh, there was no expectation that um, anyone would understand the pain and the heartache that they had gone through because they have always been othered. I mean, I have directly been affected by that being othered with growing it, growing up within polygamy um, that has just been carried through. So they really just um, kind of turned into each other and supported each other and loved each other and um, drew, withdrew love and support from each other. They had zero expectation of support or help from the outside world. I do know that there was a lot of times this even happened in the 1944 raids um, after my grandpa was out of jail. Uh, Life magazine came in and took pictures of the wives feeding their children at dinner and and kind of was trying to normalize, not normalize, but it just be like these people are humans. They're just yeah. here feeding their chil children and having families and um, and got national attention in that way. And I think that's actually why they didn't continue to arrest polygamous men is because they had gotten so much negative national news. Um, so that really worked in their favor. But uh, so when my grandpa was murdered nationally, there was a lot of love and support. But here in Utah, it's a very it's a it's a it's a stain on, yeah. I think, that at least mainstream Mormon church really seems to perpetuate that they would like to ignore and get rid of and they can't seem to. Um, and so they don't get a lot of support from mainstream LDS church, which is the majority of. Utah, at least in the 1977. So they didn't really ask for it. They didn't expect it. Um, they know nationally they got a lot of attention and maybe some support there, but within Utah, they didn't, and they weren't expecting it. Wow. I, I think inside Utah, it, it's not, it's not polygamy because obviously the church still teaches polygamy as a, <laughs> you know, as a doctrine that it's going to continue in the afterlife, but it's really the fact that, uh, you're not obedient. The prophet has said not to practice it. You're still practicing it. You're not obedient. You're the worst kind of apostate there could be because you're not obedient to the, to the prophet. And I think we see that a lot in, uh, in the church. Anytime you aren't obedient, that's worse than whatever it is that you're practicing yeah. or doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I like the way that you've kind of summarized that because I think at least my perspective perception is that hit the nail on the head is, is that you have this opportunity to correct yourself with what the prophet is saying now, and you're not. And not only that, now you're claiming someone else as the leader. So they're not only going, we're going to continue to live polygamy. It's like, and this person's my leader and my priesthood holder. And, and so, yeah, it kind of throws it in their face. So <clears throat> why don't you um, explain to everybody a little bit about how you, you did eventually leave the polygamous group and join mainstream Mormonism. And then did you see a different perspective, uh, how they viewed the group that you came from or even these events? Because I'm sure when you left, you know, these events are closer than they are now. So um, what was that like to see your family uh, through the eyes of now you're mainstream looking back the events? Oh, that's right. You guys had the, the prophet that was murdered. I mean, you know, it must've been yeah. really interesting to see yeah. it from the other side. Yeah, I think that if you hit anyone that was an adult in 1977, so if, like when I joined the mainstream LDS church at 18, if I talked to anyone that was like um, my friend's parents' age or my parents' age, absolutely. They knew exactly who Rulin Allred was. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, that was your grandpa. Oh my gosh, that was crazy. Oh, can you believe it? It was very sensationalized. Um, 
no one said, sorry. <laughs> I was like, wow, that must've been really hard on your family. Are you okay? And that was none of that. It was like, wow, wow. that was crazy. Yeah. You know? Um, <clears throat> but younger generation, like my generation, no one had heard of it. None of my friends had heard of it. Um, they didn't talk about it. And I think that again, that just speaks to why, why are we sharing that story when it's, it's a stain on the church. So it's not going to be something they're going to talk about. Um, in fact, they really didn't like the, the church really didn't like the attention they were getting when he was murdered <clears throat> because it brought spotlight onto, um, how the church's teachings were very similar. Yep. And, <clears throat> yeah. It was based sure. on blood atonement and the very teachings that the, the polygamy blood and atonement, polygamy. those were the big doctrines that brought this all together. And those are uniquely LDS doctrines. <laughs> There's still yeah. core doctrines. I know it happens yeah. every time there's something like that in the polygamous world, the church has to come out and say, this is and, not us, right? And they that's what always I was have say. to do it. They have to explain. And people in the world are like, yeah, but it seems like you, you know, it's very hard yeah. to differentiate. And again, that's the othering, right? They're, yes. they're even yes. not saying anything. They're going yeah. specifically taking yep. time and effort and money to come out and say, that's yep. not us. So that yep again, is another yes. other thing like that. Whoa, what are yeah. uh, not us. Don't get mixed no. up. No. Yeah. Yeah. But the world, again, season, they're like, it really seems like you, you have this and this and this yeah. very similar. How is it not you? Exactly. Yeah. Everyone else sees that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that's really what happened is when I joined the mainstream LDS church, it was really the older generations that would say, Oh, that was your grandpa. Oh, that's crazy. Um, but really that's it. Uh, within my family, when I decided to leave because of the way my mom was raised with my grandpa Rulin and how much he actually loved and adored the mainstream LDS church, um, she was really okay with it. She was just like, at least it's still the gospel. Um, you can always choose to come back to polygamy if you choose to. She really saw a very um <clears throat> fascinating view between the two. <clears throat> My dad, who uh grew up polygamist, um, and within his family structure, did not kind of have that same point of view where the church is is very similar and that it's not a big deal really did struggle with me deciding to join mainstream LDS church. Um, he really wanted me to, uh, choose the higher law and choose the fullness of the gospel. And he was really sad when I decided not to, it really broke his heart. He and had was the prophet. Not at the time. Not at that time. Okay. No. Not at that he time. He was okay. on the council, which is okay. similar to the 12 apostles of the mainstream so he's been, he was on the council my whole life. So he okay. had direct, you know, impact and uh, direct communication with Owen, which was Rulin's brother and the leader of the AUB. And in fact, I had no idea because according to the line of succession that went from Rulin to Owen to whomever should have been after him, depending on who had been on the council the longest, which is kind of what they do within the mainstream LDS mm -hmm. church. He really didn't have an opportunity to become the leader of the AUB. According to that, it really wasn't in our purview. It wasn't in our idea of like what our family plan was going to be. Um, it really was because they had skipped over a few council members uh, when Owen had passed away. They had skipped over a couple. And then when Lemoyne, who was the next leader, passed away, surprisingly, my dad became the leader and had skipped over a few more, which created issues among the AUB members a few times. Um, so 
it, it really wasn't something that we thought was going to happen was him becoming a leader. So, but he was on the council. Our family did have notoriety within the community because my mom was a direct descendant of Rulin and, and then my dad was on the council. So there was worry and repercussion, but it really didn't bother my mom too much. It really bothered my dad the most, uh, but he did allow me to join the church. And I don't know if a lot of people are aware especially with outside of the Mormon community, that when you're coming from a polygamist background, because of the history between the mainstream LDS church and polygamists, you have to go through some very rigorous steps to be able to become a part of the mainstream LDS church. Now, remember, I had mentioned that uh, my grandpa had encouraged his members to go to the temple and get their endowments Mm out and wear the garments from the temple And so that really made the mainstream LDS church angry when they instituted that when you're coming from those groups that you have to meet with a member of the 12 apostles and you have to wait until you're 18. Uh, So that's what we did. We waited until I waited until I was 18. I actually decided to join the church at 16. So I stopped dating within the AUB. Uh, which was fine. I had a, I dated a couple people within the AUB and then decided to join the mainstream LDS church at 16. And that's when I decided to start dating people within that church, the mainstream LDS church. And um, I had to wait till I was 18, but really uh, my dad was by at that time able to just kind of accept that I was joining the church and, and was pretty kind about it. So my family, I didn't really suffer being cut off. Um, I didn't have to escape again because of their similarities and because of the way the AUB functions. Um, there's not really like this trauma of me either being kicked out of my house or, um, having to escape or, you know, I was promised to some older man and now, you know, I barely made it out before I was going to have 17 babies. Like that wasn't (laughs) something it's very, uh, boring, which doesn't make great television. So well, and you described that as a difference with your grandfather when we talked before that it really was the underage thing in the AUB. That's not, you know, it's consenting adults deciding to engage in this lifestyle. So that's yeah. a huge difference. Yeah. So you're yeah, not having those exactly. dramatic moments of running like we saw in in the documentary where they literally were running for them li- their lives out the door, being hidden. Th- I mean, all of that trauma. You you didn't have that in your organization. So. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. And, and I can see, I can see uh, people watching this show say, well, you guys were kind of glorifying polygamy and, you know, there's so much uh, hatred, especially in Utah yeah. towards polygamy. Can you tell us from your viewpoint, you're somebody who grew up AUB, you grew up in polygamy, you went to the, to the uh, mainstream Mormon church. Mm-hmm. Now you're a post-Mormon. Did, did you see poverty in your group did you see abuse uh what's your take on polygamy at this point having lived all the different uh facets of it Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a good very good question i i think that it can be a very complex answer because humans are complex and there's so many different aspects that play into religion um my perspective and what i grew up with was Generally speaking, a lot of these people are trying their best. They're trying to live their lives the best way they know how. Um, I can't speak to everyone that lives within this community, but 
Um, generally speaking, my interactions with people, they really are trying their best. And then on top of that, there is some very unhealthy things that perpetuate poverty and abuse. So the fact that um, polygamy has such a bad stain on the church and is um, can be criminalized, or I guess it's been decriminalized, but because of the secrecy and the mistrust of the government that perpetuates secrecy and mistrust within the group. Um, and so women who are being abused or children who are being abused don't feel like they can get the help or the resources that they need or that they want to get to help heal that abuse and to get away from it um, because of this point of being secret. Um, then on top of it, we are taught within the AUB that we are God's chosen people, which can excuse a lot of behaviors. Because if you're God's chosen people, then when dad's getting mad at me because of whatever, and he's decided to be super angry, well, he's a spokesperson for God and God can make an excuse for a lot of different things. So if you believe that he is the true priesthood leader of your home and he knows best what he has decided to be angry about or to fix or to decide for you when really he's just a human trying his best with his trauma and his issues that he had as a child and growing up and trying to deal with the stresses of multiple women, um, being within a family, it, it, it can be, it can excuse a lot of human behaviors that are extremely unhealthy. And yes, there is a high poverty rate and there's multiple reasons why there's high poverty rate. Part of it is, um, at least within the AUB, and I'm only speaking of that, the majority of them have been taught not to rely on government assistance. Um, and I know that differentiates from the FLDS who really are believing in like bleeding the beast and taking mm -hmm. advantage of the government. And um, that is not what my grandpa taught. He taught the stark difference of that. And that's been perpetuated through the AUB. And so a lot of these women who um, are are asked and they believe they're being righteous, have a lot of children and that's very expensive. And so they do live in poverty. Not only are they asked and required and believe that they should have a lot of children and that's their higher calling and that's what they believe to be true. And that's how they believe they're going to live in heaven with Jesus Christ and with their family. Um, that also takes them out of the workforce. Who's going to be able to take care of these children. And you're also being taught that your highest calling is to be a stay at home mom. So that's taking away an income, um, that you could be a dual income family. So then you're taking away an income of a whole person who's now adding to the issue with having lots of children. Now you're going to add to the issue of the financial strain of, having poverty because this man not only has to support one wife with multiple children, now he's supporting multiple wives with multiple children. So it's this perpetuating problem um, that creates poverty, that creates secrecy, but there's multiple things feeding into that bucket. It's not just one thing. Um, the abuse is multiple things feeding into that bucket of the importance of um, staying secret and staying quiet and not drawing attention mistrusting the police, mistrusting the government, um, the, your priesthood holder knows best. And so if he's perpetuating these unhealthy habits of how to deal with issues, then that's going to carry out through the family. And that's going to come out in different ways, whether it's abuse of physical abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, there's all these different things, but it's all 
it's all feeding into the bucket of abuse. So there's multiple reasons why um, I definitely feel like it's not something that's a healthy thing, especially for me and and um, for my family, at least. I feel like it perpetuates a lot of really bad things, uh, but I do see the beauty in these people trying so hard to be good people. Um, I have siblings that I think are just amazing, kind, loving people who are really truthfully doing their best every single day that choose to live within this community. And I can respect their love for their belief system. That's what I can respect. I don't support the abuse. I don't support the poverty. Um, and, and to, to piggyback off of that, the only way we're going to create any kind of change within any community, whether this has to do with politics or religion or um, within a family system, the only way you can, you can have any kind of change is to show them love and show them um, that you're there for them. Um, not obviously within boundaries, but you have to show this love. You have to be there for them. You can't just write them off. You are perpetuating the problem if you're not going to be there to be able to talk to them and show them love through whatever issues they're going through, whether it be poverty or abuse or whatever their belief system is. The only way to perpetuate change is to be willing to show up. Well, that's exactly right. That it's funny though, when you describe the AUB, there's a lot of things that you describe that are similar in mainstream Mormonism, of course, right? The large families, the patriarchy, oh, we could go on and on. What does your immediate family, your cute kids, what do they know about how you grew up? What do you tell them? I mean, I've told them everything. You so told them everything. as you can clearly see an open book, yeah, um, you're even an open when book. I was even when I was a mainstream LDS, I have never been ashamed of where I came from because I didn't choose it. So why do I need to be ashamed of my family or where I came from? You, you can't fault me for something I didn't choose. Um, so my children have always known that I grew up polygamist. Um, and I did talk to them about, the way I was mistreated as a child. Um, I'm sure if you've heard any of my other podcasts, I, I grew up within like a mainstream LDS neighborhood and I was very mistreated and very ostracized and rocks thrown at me. And, and I took those traumas that I experienced as a child um, and taught my children to never mistreat someone because of their family or because of what their family believes in. Um, and I felt that it was really important because I never wanted my children to treat other people like that. So my kids know everything. I'm an open book. We've always talked about it um, because I think it's really important for people to learn from other people's mistakes, experiences. And um, I owe it to my children to share where I came from and why I make the choices I make. And why I react certain ways that I do, like even when I'm having a very frustrating day, I'll talk about, you know, that was my that I, that anger came from my fear of not having enough money or my anger from um, being worried that I was going to be judged by someone else. I just think it's really important for you to talk. At least I did for my children. It's important for them to know why I am the way I am so that they can choose that or they can choose differently to make them more prepared and be more informed. That's a really, really good perspective. Do you have any, as we're kind of wrapping up here, um, any final thoughts about the documentary itself or what you hope somebody watching it um, might gain from it or see from it or another perspective? What are your 
what are your just thoughts in general? Oh, okay. Uh, my thoughts on the documentary from what I've seen so far is um, I am proud of these women who have decided to take a very hard family life and make the best of it. And I love that they are sharing um, positive messages and, and how they have recovered or gotten past uh, what family trauma they've had within it. And I, and I respect that of them. And I think that's lovely. Um, and I also have a thought of, of there is so much more context and life behind these stories. Um, and so many more people that are affected, like you can watch that. I watched that documentary and just listening to, um, specifically what happened to my grandpa. I know a lot of these backstories and behind the scenes, um, things that went on that, um, are so much harder than these women understand. And that's okay. I don't expect them to understand that, but they weren't directly involved in these murders. They weren't, which is great for them, but they are not, I don't, it, that's fine. It's just hard to just watch it. And then them just going, so everyone just needs to love when it's like, that's, that's great. And I think that's lovely for you and you should be like that, but there's so much trauma and hurt that happened and that is perpetuated through. And it makes me look at other documentaries differently too. And understanding that when I'm watching these other people's lives, that that has perpetuated and affected so many other people that I'm unaware of. Um, so I guess my, my thoughts on it is um, to have compassion and understanding and empathy that people are going to have different perspectives and different understandings within just like one documentary. It's just giving you one point of view or just a few um, and to have empathy, empathy and hold space for different people with their different stories. Yeah, I think that's the best perspective of all. I think you said it absolutely perfectly. So Landon, do you have any final thoughts or questions for the amazing Liz? <laughs> I just love having Liz on. We got to I have know. lunch with her yesterday to I talk know. about this and just so much fun. She's always enjoyable to be around and uh, just love Liz. So thank you for coming yeah. on. Yeah, yeah thank you. So yeah, yeah thanks sharing. for letting me come on. It's always lovely to see you guys <laughs> and hang out with you. And I always feel very welcome um, and very understood. So I just want you to know that you guys are wonderful um, hosts and you guys do a wonderful job. And I always feel very heard and very seen. And I just really appreciate what you guys do and think you guys are marvelous. And they are awesome to hang out outside of just podcasting. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying that. That's very nice. No, and I think this is a valuable conversation. And I think I love that takeaway at the end that anytime you see something presented or a documentary or read something, there are so many other stories within that story. And that's just how it is. Is there anything that's written from your family's perspective of these events? Is there any, like you said, your aunt? Um, yeah, I would specific? highly recommend uh, Predators, Prey, and Other Kind okay. of Folk by... Dorothy Allred Solomon. I don't know if you can put a link to Amazon. We'll, we'll put a link. Yes. Yep. Um, she links. does. She is a beautiful writer. And I'm not just saying that because she's my aunt. Mm -hmm. Like she um, has many awards for her writing. She is a beautiful writer, very eloquent. And uh, she does a wonderful job talking about my grandpa, her father and those experiences. And yes, it does cover uh, the murder. So Great. Yeah, we'll definitely include links to that or anything else we mentioned because this is it's an important topic. And, you know, it really, it wasn't that long ago as far as, you know, its reach into, into what we're all living now. So, all right. Well, thank you very much. And please, everybody, uh, 
comment. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Have you watched the documentary, The Daughters of the Cult? Um, were you aware? Uh, are you old enough <laughs> like I am to be aware of that situation that happened um, back in the 70s? And and what are your thoughts just about Liz's take and, you know, her side of the family and the things that they went through or polygamy in general? Please comment on anything. Um, don't forget to like and subscribe to Mormonish Podcast. And if you'd like to be made aware of when new episodes come out, you can hit that notification bell. Um, as always, if you would like to financially support Mormonish Podcast, we have links in the show notes to Venmo and PayPal. And boy, do we appreciate everybody that does, don't we, Landon? We just, we're just yeah. overwhelmed sometimes by how supportive and amazing everybody is. We just appreciate you so much. So we will say goodbye for now, once again, from Mormonish. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.